We've prayed a lot already this morning. We've prayed here during service, prayed before service. Um, just, I'm just going to be honest, Lord, because you already know my heart. Sometimes when we pray a lot, I just kind of think, yeah, 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 get on with it. Um, I know that doesn't satisfy you. So we're going to talk about prayer. Well, you're going to talk about prayer. And we're going to read it. And my hope this morning is that you would change every heart in this room in regards to prayer. That we would become a people who are so inundated and focused and enamored in prayer that it changes our lives and changes the lives of those around us because you change things, God. And we're asking for change hearts now because if we aren't sanctified this morning, then what's the point? So sanctify our prayers and sanctify our lives and sanctify our families and our marriages and our relationships. Sanctify this church and help us to become more like Christ so that we would bring you much glory and we would be more satisfied in you. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. After Paul has been... Um, addressing the whole first chapter, addressing sound doctrine and false teachers and how to deal with unrepentant sin. It's all just a lot. It's a heavy, heavy doctrine. It's a lot of information. Some of it's hard to hear. But Paul now transitions into some new subject matter, namely uh, orderly worship within the church. So, it's going to get into a little bit of this is what church services should look like. This is what church, this is how church should be ordered. This is how the pastors and elders should lead. And these are the things they should include or not include. And this is why and this is how to do it. So it's a lot of instruction on what gathering together in corporate worship should look like. And Paul's big idea here is how the church functions as they gather corporately to worship God in the various ways, such as singing, preaching, giving, serving, fellowship, prayer, and any other thing that we do on a Sunday morning. Um, but the first thing that Paul addresses is prayer in the corporate setting, which is the context of today's verses. So it's mostly about prayer. And we'll see as we move on in this text that there's more context to this than just prayer. But he leads in with, this is what... This is, this is really important. We're, we're talking about how to worship corporately. If the church gathers together, what are the most important things? And he starts with, you have to be praying. And not just that you have to be praying, that you should be praying, but how you should be praying and what kind of prayers and, and what those kinds of prayers will produce in you. So it's not just, hey, when you get together, make sure you pray because I said so. Or because other people need you to pray for them. All those things are true. We should pray because God says so. We should pray because others need our prayers. 
But there's a, there's a, a conclusion at the end of this text that tells us this is more than just that. This is also prayer is for you. Like if you're not praying, that's like not eating. In fact, I'd say it's worse. You'd be better off not eating and starve to death than to not pray. That's better. Because when Jesus met the woman at the well and he got done with her, he was exhausted and his disciples came to him and said, eat some food. He's like, I don't need food. I'm doing the Lord's will. That's my food. Because Jesus recognized his relationship with his father, his communication with his father, his time alone with his father, his communion with his father, so that he could do the father's will, which doing the father's will is obedience and submission and Christ-likeness and righteousness and holiness. So to do all that, righteousness, holiness, Christ-likeness, to be that, Jesus is like, I have to pray. And it's more important that I pray than that I eat. Now, Jesus isn't saying, don't eat. He's saying, disciples, you're, you're so focused on this, this flesh that you're wearing, this body that you're in, this earth that you're in. This is not your home. That's your home. With the Father, that's your home. With me in eternity, that's your home. So have a relationship with God like he's your Father and you're going home. So... This is more than just other people need to be praying. Other people need your prayers or we're commanded to pray. This is, this is for you. Prayer will change your life. Okay? If there's anything you get today, get this. If you pray, it will change your life. Now we could just stop there and be done. But Joel was like, I need more material for my life group. So uh, <laughs> I'm going to pick on you the rest of the day, man. <laughs> um, but we can't stop there because Paul gives us instructions on how to pray and what it looks like and some of the reasons behind it. And then ultimately finishes with what does it produce in you? So we get to verse 1 and Paul says, first of all, then. So let me just clarify some linguistic things here. The word then is not a synonym for since. So we can use the word then to kind of mean since, and depending on what's said beforehand or afterwards. Uh, but the word then, so Paul's not saying like, first of all, since, or because of what I said before, then does not connect with the previous verses, but it acts as a transition into new subject matter. And he says, first of all, then. So first of all is also... Not a reference to the previous verses, but indicates that Paul has a list of other issues that he's going to address, this being the first on his list. So what is the list about? It's about how church leaders are to regulate corporate worship with the entire congregation. And the first thing on Paul's list is prayer. So he goes on and says, I urge. Let's just stop there for a second. Urge is a strong word. That gives the sense of, believe it or not, urgency, right? So he's, he's calling for immediate action. And it, it, doesn't, it doesn't just connotate that, that, that prayer is important in the body, but that prayer is expedient and prayer is immediate and prayer is needed now. Don't wait. Pray now. 
So he urges what? That supplications, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings, and all who are in high positions. Now these prayers are intended for the corporate gathering of the church, and we as a body should be praying together when we gather for worship. And when we pray together and we gather to worship, Paul says we should be praying for everyone, because he says all people. Now, Paul gives no parameters for how often these kinds of prayers should be done or how often we should be praying for government leaders and for all people, but the implication is that this is a standard practice within the church. This happens all the time. There's no, and there's a lot of times in scripture, or a lot of t- examples in scripture where we're told to do something that has this incredible fervency attached to it. This has to be done now and it has to be done quickly and it has to be done repeatedly. And it ha- this is super important, super important. But then there's no parameters for, make sure that you do this every Tuesday and Thursday for an hour. Like, there's no direction on those things. Make sure that you have communion once a month, the second Sunday of the month. That's not in the Bible. That's how we do it here. But that's not in the Bible. So there's a, again, this is one of those situations where he's just saying, I urge you to pray. How often, Paul? If I have to tell you how often then there's a problem right here. Because if you're filled with the Spirit, because you're in the Word and you're communion with God, you desire prayer. And if you're not doing those things, the answer is prayer. If you don't desire God, pray. Because if you do, you're communing with God. And in communion with God, he, he fills us with His presence and His love whom is the Holy Spirit. So we get filled with the Spirit by communing with God. So if you don't desire God, and you don't desire to be in the Word, so you're not in the Word, and you don't desire God, you know you want to, you're like, I just wish I desired Him more, I know I'm supposed to, and I know I want to, I just don't. The solution is not just wait till He drops desire in your lap, that's never going to work. You need a closet. And you need to go in that closet, and you need to pray. Because that's what Jesus commanded. And the reason Jesus commanded us to pray in a closet, maybe, I'm not being too literal about the closet, okay? But the point that Jesus makes there when he says go in a closet and pray is that you need to be alone with the Father. This isn't about other people seeing you pray. This is about you and your relationship with God. Go have secluded time. If you're praying in the car on the way to work, great. If you're praying throughout the day, great. If you're just offering up a little quick prayers throughout the day, fantastic. But if you are missing communion with the Lord in silence and in peace and in quiet and even in darkness, then you are missing out on a huge, huge portion of your relationship with God. So we're not told how often to do it because believers shouldn't have to be told how often to do it. My wife doesn't say, Mark, now, every morning at 8 a.m., And every night at 9 p.m., I would like one kiss, please. And throughout the week, I'd like two hugs on Wednesday and Saturday. That would be weird. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know, Scott, that would be like, I'd be like, that's so strange. Like, first of all, now that you've made it a rule, I don't want to do it. Now I'm like, okay, I have a standard and I have to do it. Right? I have to do it because she told me I have to do it. But if she doesn't tell me, and it's just a matter of how much I love her, I'm going to kiss her all day, every day. And I do. So, in case you're wondering, 
I know you're sitting there thinking, well, how often do you? Okay, so um, the reason there's no parameters for how often and when and all those things is just because God just desires your desire. And again, if you're not desiring him, do it anyways. That's where the desire will come. And it will also create in you a desire to be in his word. And there are some parameters, though, that aren't just, you know, about time and when and how often or whatever. That, there's no parameters there, but there are parameters for how we should be praying and the things we should be praying for. We should be praying for government leaders, apparently, in this text, verse 2, and for all people. But the implication is clear. It's a standard within the church that as we gather together corporately, we're always praying. It should be a common occurrence that we pray together. And if our minds are fixed on Scripture, this should become an easy task because it brings us great joy because we love our Lord and we love to talk to Him. I love to talk to my wife. Why? Because I love her. I want to know what she thinks, so I ask her questions. I want her to know what I think, so I tell her things. I love when my kids approach me. I'm their father. God is our father. I love when my kids come to me with needs and I get to answer their tough questions or fill their needs. That is a satisfaction for me. How much more does the perfect father of lights find great joy in your absolute need and dependence on him? He wants you. He's not saying, pray because I said so. He's saying, I want you to want me because I want you. This is a relationship. Relationships go both ways. I desire you, child. I want you to desire me. And in most cases, the parent desires the child more than the child desires the parent. Why? Because the parent is usually more mature. In the case with God, he is perfect. It's not even about maturity because maturity implies that someone goes from a lack of maturity to a stature of maturity and God cannot and has never grown or learned. He is the source of all knowable things. So there is no maturity that has developed in God. He just is the definition of maturity and he is perfect. And so us compared to him is God desires us more than we desire him. That's always going to be the case while we're in this flesh on this earth. Just as, and this, this isn't always the case, but it tends to be the case, just as chil- your children desire you, don't desire you as much as you desire them. Doesn't mean they don't love you as much. It's just a different relationship. And so, and that's why parents are like, you know, do some crazy things sometimes that make kids go, ah, get off my back. It's like, I just love you, that's all. So like, in parents, you know exactly what that feels like, right? And the kids are like, oh, you're so invasive or whatever. But it's just pure love and, and, your, and parents to just, just want their kids to just come to them and that's what God desires for us. Our prayers are often extremely practical to our lives. And now, hear me on this. It is very important that we are praying practical prayers, okay? But some of these practical prayers in our lives sound like things like this. Uh, Pray for my grandma. She's in the hospital. Pray for safe travels. Uh, Pray for my toe. I stubbed it. Uh, Pray that God would provide financially for our family. Is there anything wrong with praying those prayers? Not at all. You should be praying for anything and everything that comes to mind. So those are absolutely on the table to pray for. Here's the problem. The problem is when we only pray for those things. 
That's the problem. Because then God becomes an ATM. Give me what I need now. I put my prayer card in the machine. God spits out an answer. Thanks. See you later. Type in my code that gives me access to God. That code is righteousness of Jesus Christ. That gives me access. Okay, God, I want this. He might give it to you. Or he might not. There's nothing wrong with praying those prayers. Unless they're the only prayers you're praying. Now notice, and I'm going to tell you why. Okay, It's important to understand why I would say praying only prayers like that can become problematic. Notice that a majority of our requests are actually prayers for three things. Health, wealth, and prosperity. Sound familiar? Our prayers are often requests for ease, comfort, and practical benefits and blessings. We may not recognize that when we pray for these practical needs, and listen, we may not desire to think only in terms of health, wealth, and prosperity. I don't think that people, that a lot of Christians are praying that way, thinking, ooh, health, wealth, and prosperity, that's all I want. No, I don't think we think that way. I think what happens is that it is the byproduct of when a believer is not in tune with the word of God or filled with the Spirit. Filled with the Spirit. If their prayers are strictly about their family's health, wealth, and prosperity, or their own health, wealth, and prosperity, or the health, wealth, and prosperity of someone else, it's the same reason that the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel thrives so strongly in America because so many don't know God's word and therefore they naturally, without the guidance of the Holy Spirit and the word of God, we naturally revert to our flesh for understanding the gospel and what we come up, then, come up with then is a selfish, unbiblical gospel that God desires you to be physically healthy, financially wealthy, and prosper in all that you do. So even if we hate the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel because it's heresy, when we are not in the word and we don't know God's command, we don't know how God commands us to pray, we also can defer to the flesh for guidance in our prayers and we end up praying only for health, wealth, and prosperity. So the key to healthy, biblical, God-honoring prayer requires we are in the word of God and know how he commands us to pray. And we don't have time to cover all the ways in which we're commanded to pray. But here in 1 Timothy 2, 1, we do find some guidance. And we do notice that the prayers of the church are to be lifted for others. Who are we to pray for? Paul says, all people, meaning other people. And not just people you know. Not just all the people in your church or all the people you know or all the people in the, your community, but all the people in your state, all the people in America, all the people in the world. Billions of people. And we should be praying for them all. Obviously, individually, that will take a long time. Considering the fact that one billion seconds is 32 years, uh, you couldn't pray for everybody individually. 
And that's not what Paul's implying. What he's implying is, if the whole church, is that the whole church should be praying for the whole world. And we can categorize the world in various ways. And again, no parameters. No, make sure you pray for uh, the people in India and make sure you pray for the people in China and make sure you pray for the Christians who are martyred, being martyred and make sure you pray for, you know, he doesn't categorize it so much, but he does give us one category. Which we'll get to in a second. But the entirety of the world needs Christ. We do know that. And not just the people you know, but everywhere. Their entire ministry is dedicated that we, to, to, the, to praying for people groups who don't know Christ. So as a body, we should be praying for all the people groups, all the nations, all the Christians, all over the world, all the children, all the parents, all the families, all the world. Why? Because that is God's heart. That's God's heart. God loves people. The people he made, he loves them. And what we'll see in verse 4 in just a couple of weeks, is that God desires that all people be saved, which is the context for why we are to pray for all people. God loves to save, so we should love that God saves and that God loves to save, and we should love how God saves, and in his sovereignty, he has set up a means by which he can fulfill his election of his chosen saints from before the foundation of the world, and one of those means for his elect to experience genuine salvation is through the prayers of the saints. So it is our responsibility to pray for people because prayer is one of the means God chooses to save people. So it's not a waste of your time. Romans 10.13 says, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That is our prayer as we pray for all people, that they would call on the name of the Lord and be saved. Among other prayers that we can pray for them. But what else matters if they're not saved? My wife and I know somebody whose life is a disaster. They're not a believer. They're falling apart. And there are people in their life who are saying, we need to pray for this to be fixed and that to be fixed and them to have this and them to have that. I'm like, we need to be praying that they get saved. They need Jesus, and none of that other stuff matters because they, we, they, God could answer all those prayers and give them everything they want, and their life would finally go back to normal, and they'd still go to hell. So, we, so what else matters if people aren't saved? So this is a huge part of our praying for all people is that we're praying for the salvation of everyone. Even though we know that there is a hell, that there are people going there, and that there are more who probably still haven't been born yet who will go to hell we know that's a reality but that doesn't deter us from praying for them one because god commands us to and two we don't know who is and who is not going and so we pray as a means to fulfill god's election for god to fulfill his sovereignty and we don't pray because and we pray trusting and knowing that he alone will do what he's going to do and what we'll discover from that is that prayer isn't just for the lost, it's also for us. It's not only for their salvation that we're commanded to pray this way, but it's for our sake. God is teaching us that their salvation is not dependent on us or our prayers. You praying doesn't save people. God saves people. You're the instrument he uses to bring people to him. 
That's the way he's organized reality. And their salvation, being dependent on God, is to remind, so the way you pray, you praying for other people to know Christ, is not just so that they would know Christ, it's also a reminder to you that just as much as their salvation is not dependent on you, your salvation is not also dependent on you. So praying for other people to be saved is a reminder of God's sovereign grace to call you to his fold, to make you his child, to, to love you, to give you Christ, to show you his grace and mercy. That's why it's not just for other people, it's for yourself. You need that reminder. When you pray for other people to be saved, you're preaching the gospel to yourself. And we need that reminder daily. And Paul goes on in Romans 10, I read verse 13, verse 14 through 15, he says, but how are they to call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? So this gives us a little insight into how we pray for all people. We are to pray that they believe. We pray that someone preaches the gospel to them. And pray that the preachers of the gospel are sent. So we're not only praying for the conversion of all people. We're praying, for, praying also for the church to send out missionaries to bring those lost people the gospel. Paul goes on and he says in verse 2 that we are to pray for the government. Everybody. All people doesn't exclude people you don't like. Paul says in verse 2 that we'll be praying for kings and all who are in high positions, which refers to any authority over you. From immediate authority, wives be praying for your husbands, church be praying for your elders, praying for local government officials, for police, for military, for the president, for state and nationwide government, not just America either. Kings and leaders all across the world. You know who really could use prayer right now? Other than the entire U.S. government, Russia, Putin, have you prayed for Putin lately? I mean, prayed for his heart? Because <laughs> what is the automatic stance of an American who sees someone as an enemy? Let's bomb him, let's kill him, let's crush him. Let's defend our nation and defend ourselves against tyranny and the enemy. I'm not saying we can't or shouldn't defend our nation. But what is the heart of someone who follows Jesus? Jesus stood before Pilate, and he submitted to Pilate. And when Pilate accused him, he said, okay. He could have just turned Pilate into like a grasshopper and stepped on him. But he didn't because he's obeying the Lord. He's obeying his father. So even Jesus has a proper understanding of authority and where he fit into that authority while he was on earth. So, do we think about that? Do we think about, I'm going to pray for Putin. I'm going to pray for uh, the leader of China, whose name I'm not even going to attempt. I tried it this week and I did not get it right, so I'm just going to skip that, but you know who he is. <laughs> and we look at, like, uh, current events that are going on and there's, you know, nations that oppose America that are kind of getting in cahoots together and... 
You know, there's all this fear mongering going on in the news and the media. Like, oh, watch out, America's going to fall apart. And there's, such, there's always just this fear, fear, fear. And if you're not in tune with the Lord, you're not in prayer, you're not filled with the Spirit, you're not in the Word, that stuff starts to scare you. And if it starts to scare you, you start getting defensive and combative. And that's not healthy for the believer. If you think that there's any group that should be left out of praying, just refer back to Paul's command when he says, pray for all people. And that makes it clear that there is no one who should be left out of the prayers of the church. If there's, who's who, who's going to pray for them if the church not, isn't praying for them? Someone needs to be praying for them. Why not it be us? In Romans 13.1, Paul says, let every nation be subject, I'm sorry, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Why, Paul? Why would I submit to a governing authority that, uh, that opposes me, disagrees with my theology, doesn't love you, and is doing terrible things like Nero killing Christians? Why would I submit to his governing authority? Well, Paul tells us, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. You're not submitting to them directly. You might be submitting to them directly, but you're ultimately submitting to the Lord because that authority is established by his authority. When I go to work during the day and my kids are home, I tell them, Dante's in charge. He's the oldest. He's in charge. You disobey him. You've disobeyed me. I've established his authority. His authority is now my authority. If you disobey what he says, you're going to have to deal with my consequences. Like that's how, it's the same reality with the government. God says, I'm the authority. I'm giving them authority. And we go, God, how could you? They're so evil. And he's like, I'm doing things, okay? You need to do what I command you to do, and that's pray for them. Now that text that says that uh, they're an authority that we are to submit to and be subject to, it doesn't mention prayer, but it does create the foundation upon which our prayers and our authorities, prayers for our authority stands. It is from a submissive heart and a submissive mind toward those authorities that our hearts are softened into praying for those who God has given authority over us. Even if they're evil, even if you don't approve of them, even if they oppose you, we're to pray for them. Even if they're ungodly people, we have to, as Jesus had, we have to have compassion for them. Jesus looked out upon the crowds and what did he feel? Compassion. And with that heart of compassion, we obey God's command to pray for them. And by doing this, we step closer to fulfilling Jesus' command in Matthew 5, when he says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You can't do that if you're not praying for those who persecute you. Love your enemies. So prayer is for the whole body to do together, corporately as a united congregation. And not only does unity as a church promote praying together, but praying together promotes unity. And that is but one of the many benefits of congregational prayer. Another benefit is that it aligns the congregation's attention and attitude upon God, which is massively important when we're doing corporate worship together. That we see God for who he is, a God 
whose glory we are to dwell in and gaze upon for the sake of our satisfaction in him and to right our minds, to correct our minds, to get our minds in line with his and our hearts in line with worship that is not only according to his rules but magnifies his imponderable grandeur and supremacy. So now that we understand the foundational drive behind Paul's command that we pray together in our services of worship to God, we can now look into what he says about prayer. Specifically, there's, there's four words that Paul gives in verse 1 that all are various forms of prayer. We are to make supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings. So we'll go through each of these one at a time. Supplications. Supplications reflect your need. Each of us could make an endless list of needs, and those are the things that God wants us to bring to him. And don't worry about offending God or being afraid to ask him for things. He might say no, but he loves that you're asking him. Because he's a father, and he's a perfect father. He desires our dependence on him because he alone is the provider. He looks at you and he goes, I know exactly what you need, and I'm the only one who can give it to you, so come ask me. And then we come and ask him for something that we don't need, that he knows we need, but we didn't ask for what we need. We asked for what we wanted. And he goes, well, you don't need that, and I'm not going to give you that. But I love that you came to me. My kids do this sometimes. They'll come up to me like, hey, Dad, I just, never mind. And I'm like, what, what, wait, 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 what? You're going to say no. I was like, you have to ask anyways. And I do that on purpose. And I make them ask me when they hesitate to ask because I want my kids to see that that's how God the Father works. That even if it's a no, and you know it's a no, ask. That's better than not asking. It's better than not praying. We need to ask him because we need to depend on him. And he loves that we depend on him. So even if you ask for something that he's not going to give you, he loves that you know and fulfilled his command to come to him for that thing. He still said no, but, he, but you still went to him. And it still showed dependence. And he loves that because he knows he's the only one who's dependable. He's the only one who can provide. So of course it makes sense that the all-knowing God who knows himself perfectly would tell you the best thing for you is to bring your needs and desires and wants to me. And that's what supplication is. And the more we depend on him in prayer, the more we will align our will with his will so that we will start asking for the things that God actually desires for us and you're going to start getting a lot more yeses. And you're going to be a lot more satisfied. Now in verse 1, there's this word, prayers which might sound just like a general word for make sure you're praying. It's not really what it is. The Greek word implies a reverent term. It's expressing more of like the attitude of prayer, a total and complete dependence on God, and a high, 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 almost infinitely high view of, of his unthinkable and unapproachable glory that when we pray this way, when we view God this way, when we enter into prayer with the magnificent perception of an unimaginable God, 
it humbles our hearts. It corrects our hearts and our minds and our attitude to bow before him and consider that our time of prayer with him is a holy and a sanctified experience where we are humbled in the presence of the almighty God of the universe. That is essential to prayer. Now, that experience might not show up every time you're praying. You know, sometimes you're sitting at the dinner table, it's like, let's pray, and you're like, Lord, thank you for this food. Amen. There wasn't a whole lot of reverence there. And you know what? There probably should be more. <laughs> but there are times when prayer, when there's, when there's not time to express reverence in prayer. But reverence should always exist in the heart and in the mind when we approach God. And this is why, again, it's so important that you have that secluded alone time. And I, I'm, not talk, I'm talking about prayer with no one else, not another person. Prayer just between you and God, where you have an opportunity to communicate to God the reverence that he deserves, which will correct your heart and mind as you start to think about what he's like and what you're like. It will fix the way you view God, and it will fix the way you view you. And as we naturally, throughout the week and throughout every day, our flesh is constantly pulling God down a little bit and ranking ourselves up a little bit and we get closer and closer to God and when we pray and we come to God with reverence for who he is and we express and communicate that reverence to him we are humbled and we start to realize that God is infinitely greater than us there is no gap between us and God because God has no end so there's only one side to this gap and it's us and as we come to God with reverence, he gets higher and we get lower. As John says in John chapter 3, he must increase, I must decrease. That is an essential element to our prayer lives. And it also helps us do the supplications that we just talked about. Because it, it helps us to start thinking about what do I actually need in light of who God really is and who I really am. All of a sudden, I don't need that Ferrari so bad anymore. All of a sudden, I'm not praying that God would pay my hospital bill. I'm still asking, God, I want you to cover that hospital bill. But if you don't, give me endurance. If I have to suffer a little financial hardship because of this bill, so be it. May I honor you anyways because you deserve it and you're worthy of the glory. God, my, my spouse has cancer. Heal them. But if you don't, let us endure with grace and with peace and with joy, knowing that our only hope is not in healing cancer, but in Jesus Christ who lives forever. And our hope lands in eternity. Not in a hospital, and not in a doctor, and not in medicine, and not in just the slight possibility that God might heal them. Our hope lands in Christ, who lives forever. That's what we look forward to. Let me think that way as I pray that you heal that cancer. That is a faithful prayer. Where you are asking God for genuine help and recognizing if he doesn't answer, I still have an answer. Because I know who God is. And that requires taking time for reverence and prayer. Now the third word is intercession. And though it does mean that we are to intercede for others, 
just as Christ intercedes for us, there is still a deeper meaning to this word, to this Greek word. It implies a childlike trust and freedom. This is important. A childlike trust and freedom in our Father of compassion that we sometimes think of God as like, you know, unapproachable because the Bible says that he dwells in unapproachable light. It's like, okay, I won't approach you then. But that's not what the word says. Ephesians chapter 3 verse 12 says, Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. He's like, doors are now open. My throne room is for all my children to come and go as they please and to sit at my feet at any time with any request, with total access, no restriction, and to do so boldly and confidently, not because you're great, but because Christ is, and he is my perfect son, and you are him. That's how God sees you, as his son. He sees you as Christ. He sees you as righteous. He sees you as perfect. He has made you perfect. He has made you righteous. He has secured your eternal life. He knows exactly what you're like in a glorified state, even though we haven't achieved that yet. We haven't experienced that yet. He knows that experience already. And he loves you like you're perfected already because you have Christ. And so he's like, why wouldn't you, if you're in my son, come to me like you're my son? Boldness, total access, no restrictions, complete confidence to, to come before God in prayer. That is massively important. How many times do you pray to God like, I don't know if I should ask you this. He's like, have you not read Ephesians 3, 11 and 12? You can ask me for anything. Christ died for that freedom for you. Our biggest problem isn't that we don't pray enough, it's that we don't pray, for, we don't pray big enough. And we don't pray big enough because every time we pray, we forgot that we haven't prayed for three weeks and we finally come to prayer like, the whole prayer is consumed with everything I forgot to pray for and I'm sorry for not praying. And then we never get to real prayer. Time to open up the can of worms and let it all out and just ask God for everything. And anything. He wants to answer your prayers. And I can guarantee you, if you ask him for anything and everything you can think of, you're not going to get all yeses. I know that much. But again, it's not even about the yeses. It's about your heart and your relationship with God, which is why he desires that prayer. So with that mentality, we can then enter into prayer and start asking God for things for other people. We can start praying for others and pray for their salvation and pray for their needs and pray for hungry children not to starve and pray for unborn babies and not be killed in the womb and pray for Christians who are being martyred that they would be saved from death and that if they are martyred anyways that they would do it in joy knowing that Revelation chapter 20 says there is an incredible storehouse of glory for those who are beheaded for Christ. So let them endure that martyrdom in joy in Christ and in peace in their salvation with hope of future eternity in Jesus. That's how we ought to be praying. And pray for broken marriages and broken families and broken people to be, to be made whole in Christ. We pray for joy and we pray for peace and we pray for hope for all hearts. 
as they come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord. That's the kind of prayers we should be interceding in that the world that comes from a reverent heart, that comes from a, a, a desire that these people would, a desire that comes from compassion for people so that they would know Christ. And we're never going to pray those prayers if we don't know Ephesians 3.12 and we don't approach God in that boldness and that confidence that we need to sit before his throne and say, God, this sounds like a stretch to me, but nothing's impossible for you. Would you save that world leader? Would you save that terrorist? Would you save my sister or my brother? Would you save my spouse? My spouse does not love you. They reject you. They won't go to church. They want nothing to do with you. They'll let me have something to do with you, but that's about it. I can't give because of them. I can't serve because of them. I'm limited because of them. My service to you doesn't happen because of them. I love them like you command me to, but I want them to love you. God, save my spouse. There is no greater prayer than save my spouse. It's the most important thing in your life if your spouse is not saved. You should be praying it 35,000 times a day. Every moment. Every moment, and every moment that God says no to that prayer, or not yet to that prayer, you are, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, to give thanks in all circumstances. So when God says no, you say, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for not saving my spouse? That doesn't make any sense. Yes, thank you, Lord, because that means I still need you. And it's a reminder that I have to pray in five more minutes for my spouse. I need to depend on you again. Now we could talk about all the different kinds of crazy people out there in the world that are really, really bad and how much we should be praying for them, and we should. But none of that is going to affect your life like God saving an unbelieving spouse. And let me magnify this reality even more. Do you who are saved and your spouse is saved. So you're in a Christian marriage. Or maybe you're not married, but you're a Christian. So you're a single Christian or you're a married Christian couple. Do you know somebody else who is a believer and their spouse is not saved? You should be praying for their spouse. We, I'm sorry. We. I'm including myself. I'm not excluding me at all. Because I don't do this. I probably do it as much as you do. I don't know. We should be praying for that person's spouse to come to know Christ just as much as they do. We should be praying fervently for that spouse regularly and constantly and repetitively and over and over and over again with, with hearts and minds that cry out to God and say, Lord, please, like Paul, I would give my own salvation that they would know you. That's, that's the dependency and the heart that God wants from you in prayer. He truly, does, I, I really believe it, guys. I really believe it. I have no idea what God, I know what he can do. I don't know what he will do. I do not know his sovereign will for tomorrow. But if the entire church started praying for unbelieving spouses who are related to this church like that, why would God not answer that? 
You don't think that's going to change the way you interact with that unbelieving spouse? You don't think that's going to affect that relationship? You don't think that's going to change the way that we start going to those people and saying, hey, you want to come to church? Hey, can we go out and spend some time together? Hey, can I take you to lunch or buy a coffee or do this or do that? I've been praying for you like 35,000 times a day. I can't get you out of my mind. You don't think that's going to change that family? Do we care about families? I'm not trying to make you feel bad if you haven't. I'm saying let's be that church. Families need it. Those believing spouses need it. They need your prayers. That family needs to be made whole. Especially if the believer is the wife and the husband is not saved. Even more so. Does that family need godly leadership from a godly man who knows Christ? And you can't tell me that as Ephesians chapter 3 says, Now to him, that's God, who is able to do what? To do what? Far more abundantly and far more I don't know how I'm saying this. Immeasurably more, thank you. (laughs) Than what? Than all that you could ask or think. That's what he can do. He can blow your mind. And one of the means that he has established to blow your mind by fulfilling unimaginable requests is prayer. So you don't think praying for unbelieving spouses in our church or in our community or in your family or with friends you know, you don't think that if the entire church starts making that its highest priority, you don't think that's going to change that family? It's going to change you. And it's going to change that family because you're going to be changed and you're going to feel desire to change that family and you're going to be praying differently and praying more fervently and praying with more confidence and with more boldness and more often and it's going to change the way you interact with those families. It's going to change this church. It's going to change the world. To change your world. And finally, thanksgiving. If all that has already been said about prayer is true, and if that becomes your heart and mind in prayer, then how could you not take time to express to God all that he has done for you? And all that he has done in your church and all that he is doing for your nation and all that he's doing for the world and all that he's doing for your spouse and for your children and your family and, your, and everything and everybody, for your boss and for at work and, and your free time and entertainment or whatever you do, thank him for everything. How could we not thank him for everything if everything comes from him? James 1, 17 through 18, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Just as God gets all the glory and deserves all the praise because he alone is the one who brought us forth by the word of truth, we are thus to recognize also that all that we have that we call good is from God. And if we know it is this, this to be true, when does our thanksgiving end? When could it end? Never. 
So it's no wonder that thanksgiving should fill our prayers. Now, all of this about prayers is to be part of the congregational worship of God and is very others-oriented, but it also provides a result. So there's this action-result clause. The first clause of this text is action, the way we pray and who we pray for. And the result is at the end of chapter 2, and the result... is drastically different from the world. It says that this prayer, this kind of prayer, and this praying for these people is going to do this. That we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. That is is a drastically different message from what the world tells us and from what we see on social media and television and the internet and the news. We, are, we live in a culture that tells us to make a splash in the world and that's to put it mildly. We, we live in a culture that tells us to take the capital, get your guns ready, fight back, fight for your right by any means necessary, defend your rights by any means necessary, to own the biggest business, to crush your adversaries and to crush your competitors, to win and to never lose, to be the boss, to own the room, to win the argument, to win the debate, and so on and so forth. It's all about power and strength and winning and dominance. That's the American way. America's been dominant for a hundred years, and you're an American. Own it! Ah, That's like the call, the American call. And that's just an element of the American dream. You can have whatever you want. Why not? You're the strongest one in the room. You can bully whoever you want. You're the biggest country in the world, the strongest country in the world. Pride comes before the fall. Yet scripture tells us something else. 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says, I got a better idea. What if instead of always being the winner, always being defensive, always taking up arms, always storming, always being the boss, always being in charge, which, which only comes from arrogance and only produces more arrogance, Paul says, what if rather you suffer loss? What if you humbly receive the experience of I'm not going to win as an ex- expression of the gospel because if I don't win now, I know one thing for sure that will never change. I win later because I have Christ. And that's exactly why Jesus went to the cross. I'll lose now. I'll go on that cross according to my own will, not because you put me there. I'll go on that cross because it's my will. And my will is to do the Father's will, and that's the Father's will. So I'll go on my own accord. And I'll take this loss in this moment. But it's because I'm getting the victory. That should be the Christian attitude. That should be how we express the gospel. We don't storm the capital. We pray quietly and peacefully in a closet. And we reach out to the people that we know and touch and can live with and see and experience and influence. He calls us to peace. He calls us to quiet lives, which is godliness and, according to Paul, dignified in every way. Meaning, if you pray in the way that we are directed to pray in this text, your own heart and mind and attitude will become more like Christ. And and you will become more peaceful and quiet and dignified in every way as an expression of the gospel.
It is not just for those that we are praying for. God desires that prayer accomplishes things according to his sovereign will. And our dependence on God revealed in prayer and our prayers being in accordance with how he commands us to pray is essential to us becoming more like Christ. It is essential to us finding peace in a world that is always rising in chaos and finding peace in Christ, which is our hope while we live out the rest of our days in a world that is falling apart and will continue to fall apart and get worse day after day. And this kind of prayer is essential to us responding to this chaotic world, not with what they do, but responding not with brash and loud and forceful and demanding kind of attitudes and personalities and personas, but the personality, persona, and nature and characteristics of Jesus Christ, which is quiet. Which can only come from peace we get and knowing that regardless of what happens, God's in control. That I cannot change the world, but I can do that which God has commanded me today, to pray to love those I encounter, to be in his word, to commune with him, to spread the gospel where he sends me and to go where he sends me and to encourage the church and to strengthen the church with your gifts, to grow your family, to do your job, to earn your living, to be, respect, to be respectable and respectful and to do it in quiet, with peace and in a dignified way so that no one can ever disqualify you from the faith. Now that kind of life is a life that doesn't change the whole world, but it will change yours. And if it changes yours, it can change the world around you. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we have this opportunity now to do the very thing you command us to do, which is pray. Pray for all people pray for kings and those in high positions. So we lift up all world leaders. We ask that you would give them the wisdom of your spirit that they can only have in Christ Jesus. Change their hearts. Bring them to Jesus. That sounds like a huge ask, Lord. And it doesn't matter. You want us to ask. It might be more about our hearts and our minds than it is about theirs. We lift up our local officials and government and police. Pray that you would protect them. Help them do their job in a way that promotes opportunities for us to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray for lost souls all over the world for people who've never even heard your name, that you would send missionaries to preach the gospel, that they would believe, that those who reject you, would, you would turn their hearts of stone and melt it into a heart of flesh and you would transform them by the power of your spirit into knowing Jesus and they would exalt you and magnify your glory. And I pray for this church, I pray for these people, I pray for myself, pray for us as a body, that you would encourage us to pray 5,000 times a day. Make this a praying church. And I pray for unbelieving spouses. Your word says that the peace and the quiet and the dignity of a believing wife will lead her husband to the Lord. Make that true, Lord. We love you and we trust you. And I pray 
your peace and your quietness and the dignity of Christ travel with all of us as we go. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.